welcome to the panel, RNZ National, Bibsy Marin and Connor English today. Well, it's been described as a staggering reduction in growth. The downturn in the housing market is beginning to bite with the NAF national average house price dropping below $1 million for the first time since September. The national average house price fell 4.9% over the past three months, ending July to $989,790. Capital gains in Wellington, Palmerston North, Dunedin, which saw large value increases in mid to late 2021, were seeing negative growth over the past year. Meanwhile, mortgagee sales are picking up. Nick Goodall is Head of Research at CoreLogic. Kia ora, Nick. Kia ora, Wallace. Wellington hit the hardest, I see, 12.2% in the last six months. A pretty big drop there, $130,000 in the last three months. Yes, coming from a quite a high, nonetheless. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's certainly been a significant turnaround. I think we were looking at the annual growth rate in Wellington was upwards of 36% at one point, and so it's a pretty stark turnaround to now see it dropping at that rate. Um, but maybe no surprise that you know things just got a little bit overcooked, and we're never going to be able to hold at that level, especially with tightening credit, limiting how much people can borrow and how many can, can access those funds at the bank too. And is that part of the, is that the main reason? I think so, yes. Tightening of credit uh, regulations, as well as that increasing cost of credit too through the increasing interest rates. So it just means that people cannot borrow the sums of money that are required to, mm. to pay those values that they could last year. Is this a market correction or would it be described as more of a crash? No, I think we're still in the correction phase. I think until we see a position where genuinely high number of people are forced to sell their property, and that's most likely going to account or come about because they lose their job. And so with unemployment still very low, people going to market still have some control, even if the power has swung to the buyer. Um, but until that right. happens, it's still called a controlled downturn. Okay, so that strong confidence in the labour market, that does serve as quite a bit of a buffer. Oh, hugely so. I think, yeah, as people have their job, they keep seeing income come in. They're going to find a way to adjust their other expenditure so that they can keep paying that mortgage, even though they are paying those higher mortgage rates, which flow through to higher mortgage payments. But unless they lose their income, you hope they're not forced to sell their property. But for investors, the sums are certainly changing as well. Mm. They're not going to be able to recoup all the costs that they're paying, you know, through, through changes in taxes and, and improving the quality of the house. So for some investors, there's definitely going to be a decision afoot about whether they can continue to hold on to some property that's not making the same level of growth that it was previously. Get rid of the rental. Yeah, you've certainly got to consider the options now. Um, for some people that bought in the last three or four years, though, they might also be holding on for that five-year period where the um, Brightline test will hit in for many people as well, where if you do sell within that five-year period, you have to pay a, a tax on that capital gain as well. So that might lead to some people holding on a bit longer, but for anyone that's owned for a longer period, um, they'll certainly be coming to that decision now where they're going to wonder about whether it's worth holding on to that property or not. Yeah, I would be quite interested to hear from those who did buy in the market last year, anywhere across the Mortu there, uh, and are now seeing these figures. Uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts and uh, are you weathering the storm, if you like? Text me, 2101. Boopsy, your thoughts or questions on this? Well, I guess my question to Nick is how much I'm noticing that the, I like the word correction coming from originally from the U.S., I guess. So the difference that keeps it away from being as serious as 2009 in America is the, the job employment pact. Is that what the difference is, really? 
yeah, I think yeah, that's certainly the case. Um, we think as well that your yeah, job market will will hold up for now, and if that does so, then yeah, we're unlikely to see prices fall away at a, at a faster rate than they otherwise would have. So, yeah, certainly lots of eyes on what's happening in that job market. It is still a very tight labour market, um, and with the potential for people leaving to go overseas for both OEs and, and maybe for better wages in the likes of Australia, it might mean that that labour market remains tight for the foreseeable future too. So potentially providing that strong foundation foundation somewhat underneath the property market. Okay, kind of. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Bob, so you keep going. I just had a comment for yeah. renters out there. I definitely have noticed that um, now's the time that people are able to negotiate slightly lower rents, which has been very helpful during this time, I can imagine. Okay, and you've, you've noticed or you've, you've, you've seen that or you've heard about that? Yeah, I've heard about that, and so yeah. that's the upside for people renting. Okay, yeah, good point. Uh, see, Connor? Um, yeah, look, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because <clears throat> I think a critical thing is going to be around cash flow. Because as as uh, uh, we're having a reset of interest rates, really, and it was a wee bit like the US in, in 2008, 2009, where people had very low cost loans and then they got marked to market. Uh, and here, I think we've got something like 150 billion uh, of fixed mortgages on, you know, probably something around 2.5%. And when they come off, I think in the next 10 months or something, uh, roughly something like that, uh, they're going to be at 5%. So that's going to double the cash flow that a household is going to have to provide um, to pay that uh, to pay that mortgage. And I just suspect that's going to be a bit of a squeeze because that'll be on increased insurance, increased rates, increased cost of living. Um, and so I think it's going to be, could be a bit challenging uh, for plenty of households just with the cash flow side of, uh, of this That's change. a pretty good point, is it not, Nick? Do you think that we might see a, a, a tick up in mortgage sales? There's certainly a large number of people who will be coming up to refix their mortgage, and they absolutely will be seeing an increase in that rate. At the moment, yeah, the Reserve Bank data says about 45% of all the value of mortgages are coming up within the next 12 months. Many of those absolutely will be coming off relative lows to higher figures. Anecdotally, we have sort of asked bankers and brokers when people were adjusting onto lower interest rates, so you were going from a four and a half to a three percent interest rate, how many of them actually start paying their mortgage back at that three percent interest rate? Uh-huh. And they said that about half people keep paying their mortgage as if they're on that higher rate. Of course, it reduces your overall interest expense, potentially reduces the length of your loan. And, and so that will create somewhat of a buffer as they're moving back up on this cycle of increasing interest rates. Um, so I do think we're going to, need to acknowledge that it probably won't, that size of the problem may not be as big as some of the data might lead us to believe, but there's no doubt we need to watch for that one. And mortgage sales, look, we do track that data. So far, there's been a very minor uptick. I think in Q2, we saw 21 mortgage sales off of a low of about six or seven in Q1 this year. Um, but again, it'll be very dependent on people keeping their jobs, keeping their income, as to whether they're forced to sell their property and the bank you know, says that they need to, you know, sell it to, to raise funds because they can't keep paying the loan. Sue in Dunedin says, for God's sake, Wallace, we wanted house prices to drop for several years. Now they finally do. The media crying disaster. Have you all <laughs> forgotten that the crisis was about rising prices, not falling prices? Uh, no, Sue, uh, it's a fair point. And look, on that, Nick, to those who are listening, go, oh my goodness, this is the time. We do have uh, funds. We have been saving for years and years and years and years. We're seeing this um, drop across, you know, Wellington, 12, 12, 12.2% down the last half year. Is now the right time? Nick? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a question we've been getting asked a lot lately. If I'm a first-time buyer and prices are falling, 
why would I buy now and not hold on? So the flip side of that is that if you wait a little bit longer, you might be paying higher interest rates yourself. But mm. we literally just did an exercise this week to look at, you know, with prices falling, how far would they fall with interest rates rising another half percent or a percent? At what point is it you know, better to wait? And in most cases, it is better to, to hold on and, and wait for that property that you really want to buy um, okay. and handle the drop. I suppose the, the, the mugs game there is trying to pick the bottom of the market. Um, if it does start to turn at any time in the future and you get caught out waiting too long. But um, certainly if your expectation is for prices to continue to fall, then um, you know you might be better off to wait a little bit longer. But worthwhile talking to a financial advisor or a broker anyway. Very good to have you on, Nick. Thank you. That's Nick Goodall, the head of research at uh, Core Logic. I wanted to ask you actually, Bobsy, just uh, briefly, uh, you you may or may not be in a position to compare house prices um between the US and New Zealand, what, 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 from any experience, what have you seen? I guess the US is very different from, from wherever you live, huh? Well, I think being from two, I'm from two central city like Los Angeles area, so it's very similar actually. Okay. Um, the cost, yeah. I think if you come from other small, it's the same as New Zealand. If you come from the smaller regions, the prices um, equate in that way. But from the states, it's the same issue. It's just population growth and. You know all the same issues that are here. That's why I'm I'm happy to hear that it's a correction. We're in the correction phase because um, I've lived through the 2009, even living in New Zealand, and so um, yeah, it's uh, good to hear that we're keeping an eye on it as a country. Mm. Seventeen past. It's going to be interesting. Connor, sorry. Oh no, just saying it. It is interesting to see uh, what's going to be interesting to see what happens with monetary policy and whether after the Reserve Bank after printing a whole lot of money and basically making it free. Uh, well, now, is, you know, that, fair? is, that, is, one is way. that fair, Connor? <clears throat> well, just look at the data, and then it's uh, swinging the other way now, and whether it goes too hard. And I think that's the that's the challenge is getting that balance, isn't it? And it's the same in the mm. states. I mean, they're going through a big increase in interest rates now, um, and uh, you know that could cause havoc. But it's a wee bit different over there because you can walk away from your home. There, mm. whereas here um, you're secured to yes. you personally rather than just the house. So eighteen past four, the panel: Connor English and Bubsy Marin with me today. A big twenty-four hours in politics. The latest One News Kantar political poll suggests National and ACT could govern together. Meanwhile, National Party leader Christopher Luxon is standing by MP Sam Uffendale after he assaulted a schoolboy as a teenager, aged sixteen at King's College. Uffendale and three others jumped on the then thirteen-year-old boy when he was in bed and began beating him with what was believed to be unscrewed wooden bed legs. This is Sam Uffendale this morning. At a press conference. No, I'm not, I'm not proud at all of who I was as a as a teenager, and I've said it to my mum and over the years that I look back and I don't really like that person because I did stuff that um, that I'm not proud of at all. You know that that I, I was effectively a, a bully and I was I was a mean person and. Um, you know, like there will be other people as well at high school that I, I have hurt um, one way or another, and, and for those people as well, I just want to apologise for that. Um, I'm, I'm not proud of it at all, and I've, I've reflected on it a lot. With us is Professor in Politics Richard Shaw from Massey University. Professor Shaw, kia ora. How are you? Good, thank you. On the poll, Labour and National, well, on the poll first, Labour and the Nats, both down 
percentage points a bit at soaring four percentage points on the last round, I think eleven percent. How do you read these latest numbers? Uh, well, I think the the interesting things are really the things that are happening with what we used to call the minor parties, Wallace. Um, so let's just put National and Labour aside for a moment. If we think in terms of blocks, left-right blocks, it's probably a better way of making sense of it because we know that we're unlikely to see a single-party majority government again any time soon. And, and a couple of interesting things here. One is that that gap between the centre-left and the centre-right has opened up to about six percentage points on that poll. Um, and that's that's a significant shift, I think. So it, it helps to think in terms of the difference between potential coalitions and a six-point gap is not insignificant. There's something else that's going on with that poll, though, too. Um, 11% of those who Kantar polled were undecided, uh, and you would imagine it, that after the events of the last week or two with the Greens, with the Findel, with the National Party's conference, then that might be shifting around a wee bit. But there's also interesting stuff happening with New Zealand First, up to 3%. Uh, no. Hana Tamaki's Vision New Zealand Party, 1%. The New Conservatives, 1%. So if you were to add those last three parties up and, and generally lob them in with the, the right centre-right vote, the gap between potential centre-left and centre-right parties is not insignificant. So I think there, some of the really interesting stuff that is happening in that poll is happening on the, on the margins around the minor parties. No. Can I bring in the issue, um, Sam Uffendale, it's got to be addressed, doesn't it? We talked about this uh, yesterday, but uh, Chris Luxon didn't know about it. The selection panel was made aware of it. How does that work? Oh, look, this is a recurring story. It's been an issue yeah. for from the National Party for some time, and I would imagine that Christopher Luxon will be uh, very much hoping several things, and one of them is that Sam Uffendale doesn't become the next Aaron Gilmore Hamish Walker, Andrew Falloon, Jake Bezent, whatever the case may be. I would imagine also uh, Luxon really wanted to be having a conversation about a different kind of young person. So coming off a, a conference over the weekend, which has been quite a good one for Luxon, he gets some traction with a particular focus on young job seekers. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we're having a very different kind of conversation about young people, and, and it really cuts across some of the news from the poll and the conference that's been coming out. So I think there is an issue there. There might be another issue there as well for... Um, for national... Richard, are you there? Yep. Yep, just turn your, turn your speaker a little bit, turn your head and come back to us. Okay, I've turned my head, Wallace, so I'm back Beautiful, with you. Beautiful, loud and clear. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so there, there, may, there may be an issue there for, for women who look at a, a pattern of behaviour uh, and are concerned by that. I think there's certainly, um, if you look at Sam Uffendale's maiden speech, there were references that he made there to violent crime and, and people behaving with a sense of impunity and a lack of accountability and so on. And that, and that jars with what has occurred. We, don't, we haven't heard everything, I suspect. Um, Mr. Riffendale referred to other people at King's College as well. So this looks like the kind of story that interrupts what was looking like a reasonably positive narrative for Luxon and the National Party after the weekend and that poll. OK. Ban- uh, panellist, Boopsie. I'd say jarring is a good word for it because... It's interesting being a private university or high school or college, I guess is the correct term, that they just get sent away. Um, I'd like to know what's, what would happen if that was a ask, public ask school. Ask to leave. Ask to leave, I think it was, yeah, wasn't just, it? Yeah, ask to leave. So how much are they learning from that behavior? And um, I, as an educator, are, it's non-negotiable. And then if there's weapons involved. So that is the worry for me just as a model. And I think as we talk about young people, they're looking for role models. And at the national level, um, I find that quite 
interesting of a story that wh- how you deal with these issues starting from a young age and how you deal with them when you learn about them later in time. I do think people are allowed to make mistakes, but at this point, um, I'm always intrigued at how private entities um, deal with this kind of violent behavior versus public well, school. Uh, just to that point, Bobsy, I think the, the languaging has been really interesting. I, I, uh, we, we keep hearing that, this, that Sam Uffendale was asked to leave, and I, and I wonder whether or not there is a difference between being asked to leave and being expelled. Um, the language of expulsion mm. hasn't been used, and I wonder if that might have been the case had circumstances been different. There may well be a technical difference between those two things. Um, but I think the, the, the point about the, the nature of the culture of those schools, uh, those of us who've been to private boys' schools uh, are well aware of uh, some of the things that are normalised there and that behaviour gets reproduced in other domains uh, and it needs to be talked about. And maybe it's easier to hide, right? Maybe it's easier to hide that behaviour over time from high school, college to universities because instead of being expelled or put on your record, you're simply asked to leave and so you can just continue on. Um, Connor? Uh, Yeah, look, it's... uh, Well, there's two things there. One is on the polls, I guess, and... and, and, um, uh, you know, there is a gap emerging between the sort of left and right. And, and I think, as um, uh, Richard uh, said, is the, what's happening with the smaller parties is really intriguing. Mm. And, you know, will we see Winston rise from the ashes um, again to be the kingmaker uh, yet again? Um, but you can see how, you know, it's been a bit of media about the smaller um, parties looking to sort of get together. And just on the numbers, you know, the Maori Party, the Opportunities Party, uh, the Vision New Zealand guys and New Zealand first, you know, that is about 10%. Uh, and that's a lot uh, in an MMP. Uh, and they can, if they did get themselves organised, potentially could decide who the next government's going to be. So I'll be fascinated to see how that all plays out. Very there is, good, we, still, we, often, we often talk about, the, you know, what did National get, what did Labor get, how do the two parties compare on that poll between them they capture 70% of the vote. So there is effectively two-thirds of uh, potential voters who are either not committed one way or another or are voting for parties other than National or Labour. So uh, it's a good poll, I think, for the centre-right parties, but there's lots and lots of, of flux and fluidity around the margins there. Very good, uh, Richard Kiora. Thank you very much again for your time. That's Professor Richard Shaw um, uh, uh, in politics at Massey University. Look, I'm not going to do a poll this afternoon, um, but I do want to ask you this. Do you think Sam Uffendale should stay or should he leave? What do you think? Text me, 2101. I'd like to hear your thoughts uh, on that. We won't do a poll, but I'd be very interested to hear uh, in your opinions on that. 26 past four, the panel. Now, this drew a fair bit of response yesterday. David Farrer saying that coming back from Australia, the New Zealand Traveller Declaration form was a nightmare to fill in. What was supposed to take 30 to 40 minutes took hours due to the site closing down or having to re-enter the pin. Pamela wrote him, Yes, nearing my return to New Zealand from the US, it took me hours across days to complete this form. It was insane. For the first hours, the site simply crashed on opening. All I can suggest is to start filling it out as early as possible. Um, Scylla said the New Zealand Traveller Declaration is simple to complete. They tell you what you need in advance. Took less than 10 minutes to complete two tra- uh, for two travellers. Not sure if we were just lucky, but I can't see how it would take hours. Well, with us is Jill. Kia ora, Jill. Good to have you on the panel. 
Oh, hi there, Wallace. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, yeah now, I, tell us your experience. Yeah. Well, I was in northern Spain with my um, son and daughter. My son treated me to a trip over there, and that was wonderful. Um, but even going there, all the forms were a bit of a nightmare initially anyway. But this particular one, I agree with David, it was just abominable. You know, I mean, oh, I, I, almost, I felt like I was, you know, having a, a heart attack. It was probably a panic attack, you know, but... <laughs> <laughs> it caused so much anxiety. I was up till about three o'clock in the morning the day before flying because, like the other person, I've been trying for days. How Pam managed to get it done in a couple of hours is beyond me. But you know, I'm not 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 particularly dumb, but I'm not I'm not the best sharpest tool. But you know, <laughs> good heavens! And this and all this being relatively tech savvy as well. Well, I mean, I'm um, I'm 71, so I, I, I but I do I can work things. You know, I know how to do things. And my daughter was she's in her 40s, and she she had trouble too. She'd actually gone to bed, and she'd managed to achieve hers, get hers through. But still, after you know a couple of days of trying, and it was just like David said. You know, you didn't have time. You know, there was they said do it within 10 minutes, but then it took them. 20 minutes to send you the information, um, the, the PIN number and stuff. And at the end of it all, I just, we all, we both wondered what on earth we did it for because nobody asked us to show anything or prove anything. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of like a fool's errand, you know. We felt like we'd been sent on a, this jolly journey of angst for no real good reason because Gosh. I assume that all that stuff is, um, I imagine that that stuff that you fill out prior to going anywhere and, and along the way is all in a computer somewhere and should actually flag up as, uh, well, I don't know. I mean, yeah. Heavens above. It, makes, it, da- it makes David Farrer's uh, episode look a little bit insignificant. Uh, I don't know <laughs> if our panellists have had to fill in a, a New Zealand traveller declaration uh, form if they've travelled. Uh, Connor, what about you? Uh, well, not for a couple of years because I haven't done much yeah. uh, travel, but when I was doing a lot of travel for five years, I had an APEC card, which was brilliant. And uh, not only did you not have to fill out any forms, you, you got the fast lane. Um, but I think with this form thing that they're filling out, you do want to want you do want to understand why are you filling it out? You know what is the purpose of it? And it seems like maybe there used to be a purpose of it, but maybe there isn't now, which is makes it doubly frustrating, doesn't Bob, it? Yeah. yeah, I flew in from Melbourne, and I actually had gotten COVID in Melbourne, so I was following that form closely. So I really don't understand now that they're not doing the testing requirement what that form does because what it did if you ticked it was that it opened the gates for you when you returned home because I'm a New Zealand citizen but as soon as I had to tick that thing that I had COVID overseas I went through a lot of more hoops so I think if if we're not doing that testing requirement I don't understand what we need that data for and why people have to go through that anymore. Well lovely to have you on Jill and I'm sorry you had to go through that. That's fine I had a wonderful holiday despite all the form filling so that's great. Well that's the point isn't it? That's the main point. (laughs) <laughs> where do you, okay. where, where do you go, by the way? I went to Asturias in northern Spain. Beautiful. Oh, You've got, you must go there if you have an opportunity. It's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Thank you, Jill. Very good. <laughs> okay. Uh, thanks. Twenty-nine to five. We have. Uh, oof, well. We've had about 20 pages of texts. It's been quite extraordinary. Um, your responses regarding uh, whether Sam Uffendale should stay or go. We'll come to a few of those later on in the programme. You are on the panel, RNZ National. Wallace Chapman here, and I'm with Boopsy Marin and Connor English. And it's time for headlines. <laughs>